You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hey, uh, I am glad to be back here this morning. It is good to be home. We've been home about a week and uh, uh, had a couple of sleep through the nights. Everybody's always, that's the first thing. Everybody's like, hey, so how bad is it getting back? It was pretty bad for a few days. Um, but we're uh, settling in and uh, Lanny and Noah and I, uh, all three got to go and we're just super appreciative of our community here and a lot of people chipped in uh, money to help uh, uh, Lanny be able to go along with Noah and I and, um, and then a lot of people pitched in behind the scenes here so that we could um, be gone for a, a few Sundays and get that opportunity. And so I really appreciate it. And I love being a part of a family that rallies together and we support each other and help each other. And um, it, was a, it was an awesome, awesome trip. Um, getting to go walk the lands of the Bible and learn uh, the stories in the places that they actually took place was pretty amazing. Uh, learning the geography and, and just how small of a place it really is was uh, really helpful helpful for me. Um, I've always been a map guy and I love looking at maps. And so getting to go look at a map and then actually walk it out um, has been really helpful for me. And I think the whole experience is going to help me um, continue to grow um, and improve as a preacher and a teacher. And I, and I hope um, not only myself, but all of us will benefit from the investment over there. So um, You'll be hearing a lot about it. It'll leak into a lot of sermons uh, in the next uh, months and year to come. And so we'll keep adding in uh, information from Israel as we can. So uh, this morning, we are jumping into a series that we started called Forever Changed, right? And so we're going to be talking about different people that have had uh, an encounter and uh, uh, connection with Jesus, if you will. And we're going to talk about what actually happens when they have that encounter and how are they particularly changed by that? What impact does it have in their life? And we're doing some cool things through the summer. Um, we're taking some opportunities through the summer to develop and give other guys an opportunity to preach and teach. You've already seen Adam a couple of times. In addition to Corbin and myself, it's neat to see Adam uh, getting up and getting in the mix and um, growing as a preacher and a teacher. And then you got to see Alex, our children's pastor last week, who did an awesome job. Uh, Alex was, uh, I listened to it, so like I wasn't here and listened to the sermon and I was cracking up listening to him. He's like, you know, if I have a job, if I'm going to, you know, so I, he, he's got a job. Um, uh, because as much as he doesn't want to be the full-time uh, guy up here on the stage, I don't want to be the full-time guy back there. So we play very well together in that regard. Um, we both like what we do, and that's great. So um, another thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing some team teaching through the summer. And uh, we're going to look for ways to um, bring other people in that we're developing to give them an opportunity to practice, to learn to preach and teach is something that's really difficult to do without practice, without an opportunity to actually do it. And so through the summer, we're going to have different people uh, tag teaming with me up here, which is why I've got my friend Cornelius here this morning. And uh, some of you may know Cornelius, but uh, uh, he and his family have been a part of real life for a long time. And uh, I'm excited for you to be here with me this morning. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, once again, my name is Cornelius. Um, Tosin... 
Hobalabi uh, and I have been part of the Real Life family for almost eight years now. Uh, it's been um, a super treat for us, um, the kind of investment the church has made in us, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here with you all today. So uh, for those of you that maybe haven't had a chance to visit with Cornelius um, since you've been at church, um, what you might have noticed is he's got a little bit of an accent. I do? No, I actually think you are the one that have the accent. <laughs> you speak American English. Well, I, from where I come from, I speak the proper English. <laughs> All the way from the south, south of here. And when I say south of here, actually deeper than South America, uh, uh, from Nigeria. Um, as much as possible, I would try to speak slowly, um, but bear with me. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. We have had a chance to get to know each other the last couple of years, and last year we spent uh, just about every Sunday afternoon together in a men's group with uh, a bunch of guys and digging into discipleship training and digging into the Word and just spurring each other on and just having some fun getting to know each other. So it's cool to get the opportunity to preach together, and I'm looking forward to it. So the story that we're digging into this morning is about a Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well. And the Samaritan woman at the well is a, is a really cool story. There's a ton going on in the story. And so I kind of want to give you some context, just fresh off of the ground in Israel. It's, uh, everything's kind of in vivid color as I look at the story. And so I want to help us understand what was going on, uh, where this story took place, and some of the important history of this story. So what's going on is um, Jesus and his disciples and many of the Jews from the Galilee area had just been to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they were leaving Jerusalem, headed back north to the Galilee area, the area around the Sea of Galilee. And it's about an 80-mile trek from Jerusalem up to the Galilee area. And it says in the passage we're about to read, it starts off with a statement that they had to go through Samaria. And in order to kind of get a visual of where that is, I want to give you a snapshot. Let's look at this map real quick. Um, so Jerusalem has got the little star in, uh, near the Dead Sea. The end of the word Jerusalem is at the top of the Dead Sea. And then the little small lake-looking thing, it's called the Sea of Galilee, which is grossly overstated um, by uh, Northwest standards. That's a real nice fishing pond. Um, and so... Uh, it's, well, it's, it's bigger than a pond, but it's a sea. Is, you'll f just hang in there with me. Um, so about the middle is a place called Shechem. It's uh, right below where it says uh, Samaria and Shiloh. Shechem is right there in the middle. That's the place this story takes place. Um, Shechem is a, a kind of a walled city. And I'll show you a picture. Let's look at this next one to give you an idea. This is a modern day picture. Shechem, there's the ruins of it there in the middle of the picture. Uh, Mount Gerizim to the south, uh, Mount Ebal to the north. Uh, Sychar just is what the, is the name of the story, uh, the name of the town in this story. Just to give you an idea, like um, Shechem was a walled city. Sychar would have been just this tiny village just immediately outside the city. So they're really, really close. And you can see this natural valley here between the two mountains. Again, uh, their idea of mountain and our idea of mountain, I grew up in Bonners Ferry, so when someone tells me that's a mountain, I'm like, where? Right? Like, those are speed bumps. In Israel, that's a mountain. 
Okay, so Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, and you've got this natural valley that takes place. So just to help you have a visual of the lay of the land and what's going on here. Now, the interesting thing is that this particular place, this little valley right here between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal is, a, is an important piece of ground because this is not the first time that God has brought his people to this exact physical spot in history. So Jesus, in the story we're going to look at, comes to this spot. But prior to that, God had brought his people to this place. After 40 years of wandering the, the wilderness, uh, God finally brings his people into the promised land. And Joshua comes to, to Mount Gerizim and he offers up an, an offering, or on Mount Ebal, he offers up a sacrifice. And on Mount Ebal, with all of the people there in the valley, he actually writes down the words of Moses on a stone tablet. Sound a little familiar. He's like actually carving them into stone. And on Mount Ebal, in this place, when God brings his people and delivers them from the wilderness, he renews his covenant with his people and he reminds them who he is and who they are and what he's all about in this place. Okay, I wanna, I wanna read the story with you. In Joshua 8, it says this. It says, there in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of the people in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all of the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the books of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. So, there's something special about this place, like this piece of ground, this valley between these two mountains, God brings his people out of their time of testing in the wilderness. He brings them here. He renews their covenant with them, and he does something amazing. He takes the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence rested with his people, and he, and he shows that he is right there in the midst of the native-born people, the foreigners, the priests, the elders, like he's trying to say that, that God brought his people to this place and reminded them that he is for all of them. He's for everybody. He's right there amongst them in the midst of them. And then he kind of puts the nail on the head when he has Joshua read the, the law out loud. He reads all of the book of the law, everything that Moses commanded. And it says when he reads it, that he reads it to the whole assembly. And it's interesting that we get this extra little detail that it's not just this idea like, well, all of the religious people were there, or all of the Jews were there, or all of the men were there. It, it specifically points out that the law was read out loud for everyone to hear, and it points out including women and children and foreigners, non-Jews. Everybody got to hear God's word and who he was and what he was about and that he was a God for everyone. That takes place in this location. Now, fast forward 
a long ways. Over the next 1,400 years, all kinds of stuff happens in this place. The cities are destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. And one of the things that happens in Israel is you'll, you'll go, um, how come... Uh, it's sort of weird that wherever they are uh, doing an archaeological dig, there's a, like a mound, they call it a tell, and underneath that is a city. It's because uh, rocks are heavy and hard to move, and when they're already cut, you just reuse them, right? And so they, they would annihilate a city and smash it all up and blow all the walls in and push them in, and then uh, later they would come along and just kind of rebuild on top of that pile. They'd sort of settle out the dust, and another city would come up. We're talking over hundreds and hundreds of years, and so this is what happened in this place. And eventually the Assyrians came and they attacked and they exiled some of the Israelites from this region out of the area. And then they brought their own people in to settle this land and they intermarried with the Israelites. And this became what we know as the beginning of the people that were called the Samaritans. So they were people that had Jewish roots and a Jewish faith that intermarried with uh, people that had uh, pagan uh, religions and worshiped false gods. And over time, they mingled those things together and had this hodgepodge of some sound doctrine and some sound teaching mixed up with a bunch of stuff that was really not from God. Not like the kind of thing that ever happens anymore, right? <laughs> Nobody does this still. We've got that figured out now. And so what happens for the next hundred years or hundreds of years, the Samaritans carry on in this way and they get more and more removed and disenchanted from their original faith. And the Jews have this deep hatred for the Samaritans, in particular for the Samaritans because they look at them as if they're like half-breeds or dogs. They actually made laws that was illegal to talk to or even look at a Samaritan. That's the history of this place. That's the how things had gone. And the story that we're about to read that John records in chapter four is a story of Jesus going to that place that we just talked about to talk with a Samaritan. I wanna read through the whole story with you. And then uh, Cornelius is gonna help us unpack some really cool stuff from this passage. So grab your Bible, grab your notes and follow along with me as stuff sticks out to you highlight it, underline it, and then we're gonna come back and unpack it. So it goes like this. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, I've been there, Any, walking anywhere will get you tired there. It's hot and there are a lot of rocks. Uh, and they sat down by the well and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, sir, give me the water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to, to draw water. Sounds like, like a magic bottle of water, right? Like the, I'll never get thirsty again. Awesome, give me some. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet and our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father and neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah who's called Christ is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town that, and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Well, uh, in that passage, there are so many things to unpack. Uh, but I want to bring our conversation today on Jesus' hopeless statement, or maybe a request to the woman. Uh, Jesus asked the woman, will you give me a drink? To a modern day folks like you and me, this sounds like a simple request, like asking a friend, can we have a coffee and things like that. But if we, if we can just go back a little bit and go into the days of Jesus Christ, into the context of what was going on at the time, then maybe we could have a better understanding of a simple request like, will you give me a drink? First, if you notice, Jesus was a man and a Jew. Uh, this presents an invisible barrier between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. In this very particular culture, it is not normal for a man to speak to a woman that he doesn't know before in public. But Jesus went ahead to break this gender barrier by asking the woman, will you give me a drink? The second thing I want us to notice in the passage also uh, is the fact that the woman went to the well alone. In this culture, women and sometimes children, they go to the well to fetch water either in the morning or in the evening. And when they do that, they do it in group. Um, it's a kind of like a social event, something, you know, times whereby they exchange. And I relate to this personally while growing up in Nigeria. Uh, every time in the morning when I wake up, I go and wake my friends and all of us, we go to fetch water together. Early in the morning, then very late in the evening, we do the same thing. As a matter of fact, the only time that I can remember that I went to fetch water by myself alone was when it was meted out as a punishment to me uh, by my hand. You can ask me about that later of what I did. Uh, 
but this reveals something else. So here is a woman coming to the well alone. And not in the morning, not in the evening, at noon. Which means this is a woman no one wants to associate with. This is a woman that is possibly an outcast, which presents a moral barrier to engage with such woman. And Jesus still went ahead to break that moral barrier and asked the woman, will you give me a drink? We also know that there is a racial barrier between Jew and Samaritan at this very point in time. But that didn't matter to Jesus. He still went ahead to ask, will you give me a drink? But the barrier that Jesus broke that actually struck me the most is actually the religious barrier. Um, at this point in time, the many rabbis taught that it's actually a sin to touch any utensils that had been touched by a Samaritan. By doing so, you become unclean. But Jesus asked the woman, will you give me a drink? Willing to drink from the same cup drank by a Samaritan. Willing to become, to be seen as an unclean person. Willing to lay down his privilege. Willing just to associate with a Samaritan woman he has never met before. And not just another Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman that is probably an outcast in her own village. So, but there's something else I want to drive our attention to. So Jesus broke the gender barrier, the moral barrier, the racial barrier, and even the religious barrier just to engage this woman. But he was actually doing much more than that as well. He was also penetrating into the layers of low self-worth of this woman. I want to bring, a context, bring that into context, a modern day context. Maybe we could have a better understanding of that as well. How many of us know Tom Brady? Okay, so let's assume. Let's assume Tom Brady came to Spokane and walking in the street of Spokane and met and in the process maybe saw an homeless man and went all the way to ask the homeless man in the street of Spokane to give him water in the homeless man cup. Can you imagine what that, what that does to the self-worth of this homeless man? That's exactly how it is when a rabbi, one of the most respected rabbi, talking to an outcast, asking her, will you give me a drink? More than breaking barriers, more than engaging this woman with dignity, more than raising her up, the passage also reveals the method of Jesus Christ, the method of engaging non-believers. So I want to drive our attention uh, to what Jesus did. Jesus engaged this woman in a way that doesn't cast her down. We didn't see Jesus Christ talking about scripture, about how much of a sinner she has been. We didn't see Jesus Christ talking about all the bad life choices that he has made. And we could see that Jesus knew of all those things, but he didn't start a conversation with them. 
Rather, he engaged this woman with dignity. He engaged this woman as somebody that is valuable, as somebody that is of worth. It didn't matter to Jesus Christ that she was a woman. It didn't matter to Jesus Christ that she probably practiced another religion. It didn't matter to Jesus Christ that she's probably an outcast. It didn't matter to Jesus Christ her status. It didn't matter to Jesus Christ her race. Yet, he engaged her as somebody that is of value. And I think that there is something for us to learn from that on how we engage people in our network, on what we do. A simple request of, will you give me a drink, open up the conversation that results in, in saving a whole village. A, a simple request of, will you give me a drink? Uh, maybe some things for us to learn from that on how we engage non-believers, and also on uh, how important it is. But, but before I close, I also want to drive our attention to one more thing, the intentionality of Jesus, how intentional it was. If you read the first opening sentence in that scripture, it said Jesus Christ had to go through Samaria. Does it? It really doesn't have to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, most Jews in this day, don't, when they are going to Galilee, they don't go through Samaria. They prefer to go eastward, to go through River Jordan, just as a way of bypassing Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. He intentionally went through Samaria to meet a woman she has never knew, knowing the sacrifice she has to, he had to make, knowing the fact that he has to lay down his privilege, knowing everything that he has to, the barrier he has to break, he had to go through Samaria. But even at that time, he elevated the self-worth of this woman by asking, will you give me a drink? Maybe something for us to learn from that. Yeah. It, the fact that that happens at this place is pretty profound and pretty amazing to me that that. Jesus, in his divine understanding of the history of his people and how God has drawn his people to himself, he, he brings his disciples, his guys, that he's modeling and teaching and going to release with the, the gospel message. He brings them to this particular place, this valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, this place where Joshua had renewed God's covenant with his people and reminded his people that he was a God for everyone. And Jesus brings them back to this very piece of ground. And he does a really Jesus-y thing here, right? Like we're all familiar with the idea that Jesus, like on the Mount of Beatitudes, he does this deal where he looks at some of the statements of the law. Like you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, like if you're angry in your heart, You've committed a sin, like you've committed a murder against someone in your heart. Like he's, he's up in the ante, that it's more than just following the rules. It's, it, it's more than just obeying a law. It's about the condition of your heart. And he, he makes a statement here in this place, like maybe you will remember that this is the place on this ground that God renewed his covenant with you and reminded you that he was a God for everyone and that he showed that his presence rested in the middle of everybody here. But maybe you've forgotten just how for everyone God really is. And he does a really Jesus-y thing because he, he reminds his people and he shows the disciples that, that he is a savior for everyone, but not just for everyone. He 
ups the ante big time because he comes to a woman and not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman and not just a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman who would have been ashamed and an outcast in her own culture. And he says to her, will you give me a drink? And he offers her living water. He offers her salvation. And in the series, we're talking about what impact does it have on the character we're looking at? Like, how are they forever changed? For sure, the Samaritan woman is forever changed. But it goes beyond that. I want to wrap up the story with you. Let's look at it. In the rest of the story, it goes like this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. I wonder what the disciples were doing, just hanging out with a bunch of Samaritans, obviously. And because of his words, uh, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now, uh, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Many more came to believe because of the testimony of this woman and not just because of what she said, but because they learned for themselves. We're gonna kind of unpack this for a second and wrap it up with some implications, some kind of nuggets that we want you to take away from the message this morning. Before we jump into those, we're gonna go ahead and serve communion. And so if you're serving communion, you could help us pass that out. That would be wonderful. And at Real Life, we have an open table, and it means that anybody that wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is welcome to have communion with us. Um, just hold on to the elements, and then we're going to take communion together in a few minutes, okay? Um, the first thing I want us to kind of look at and take away is this. God's always wanted his people to represent him and share his redemptive story to the aliens, orphans, and widows around them. Like in this place we see God do a really cool thing. On the same chunk of ground, he profoundly and amazingly tells a story about the kind of God he is, that he's a God for everybody, and that he wants his people to share him with everybody. The second thing, uh, implication that I want us to uh, take away from the conversation today is that reaching people for Christ is not always comfortable and sometimes actually may be difficult. But you have to go where people are if you really want to reach them at all. And establishing relationship with people is contingent upon removing the barriers, which might be an actual barrier or a perceived barrier that exists between us and them. And then the last one up is this. Uh, or the next one up. Sharing the story of where Jesus found, uh, sharing your where Jesus found you story. Um, has the power to lead others to seek Christ on their own. Like we saw in this deal is that this woman, she goes and shares her testimony. Like she talks about what happened at the well. Like come and meet a guy that told me everything I ever did. And then, and no doubt they talked, she talked about the interaction with him and the, the testimony about living water and that like you've got to come see it for yourself. When we share our where Jesus found me story, the thing is that it has the power to actually engage people and, and allow God to just draw those people to himself. Like people don't have to rest on uh, your amazing evangelism skills. It, it's not up to how perfect your story is or how able, uh, well you are to communicate it. If you just share your story about where Jesus found you, 
it can lead to people actually seeking Christ on their own. Let's look at the last one. So the question how uh, a thought I want us to take away in our conversation today is what barriers are you willing to break? And what privilege are you willing to lay down in order to engage non-believers within your network? Uh, we could see the lens that Jesus Christ went to in order to engage this Samaritan woman. Uh, the method he used and the intentionality uh, of him going all his way to reach this woman. Uh, and just like the communion that we take, uh, Jesus Christ asked us to remember him. Uh, he also wants us to remember his method. He wants us to remember his ways. He wants us to remember his heart. So as we think about those things, as we ponder upon them, let's think about people in our network right now that we can reach this week in the ways of Jesus. Um, so I, I think it's time to take our communion. Uh, in the night that Jesus Christ died, he took the bread and he had the disciples to remember him. So I want us to do the same thing today. So let's have the bread and remember Jesus. In the same night he took the drink. Uh, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus. Everlasting Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. We thank you for the model that you've laid down for us. We thank you for the length you went through in order to engage people within your network, even people maybe that you didn't even know before. Now we pray, God, as we go out this week that you give us uh, the courage. You give us the boldness to reach people within our network we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.